Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. It's a bracing reminder to all of us that we have to take this virus seriously. Don't let it dominate you. Don't be afraid of it. You're listening to our special US election series, Campaign Confidential. As EU leaders gathered last week at a European Council summit to talk about some of their most pressing and complex issues, like protests and upheaval in neighboring Belarus, tensions in the eastern Mediterranean, and thorny relations with Turkey and Russia, news from the United States couldn't be ignored. About Donald Trump uh, tested uh, positive, uh, of course, uh, we all wish, uh, wish him a speedy recovery. That's European Council President Charles Michel speaking at the press conference at the conclusion of the EU Leaders' Summit, addressing breaking news that President Donald Trump tested positive for coronavirus. It's stunning news. The President of the United States now confirming to the world that he and the First Lady of the, of the United States have both tested positive for the coronavirus and they will quarantine. The president tweeting out just... The world's fascination with American politics is hardly a new phenomenon. But in 2020, the stakes feel far higher as European partners across the Atlantic anxiously wait for America to decide its future, and in many ways, their future and the world's as well. I'm David Herzenhorn, Politico's chief Brussels correspondent, standing in for Ryan Heath this week, and you're listening to Episode 8 of Campaign Confidential. Can transatlantic relations survive four more years of Donald Trump? And what would change, or even more interestingly, perhaps not change, if Joe Biden is elected instead? Does Europe even want or need anything from the United States these days? To contemplate these questions, I sat down with two of Europe's top thinkers on transatlantic relations. Radek Sikorski former Polish defense and foreign minister, and currently chair of the European Parliament's Delegation for Relations with the United States. And Wolfgang Ischinger, former German ambassador to the United States and chairman of the Munich Security Conference. We talked about how America's election is bound to impact Europe. Many of the issues that burden the transatlantic relationship currently were not invented by Donald Trump. We should not expect that the major differences will sort of disappear overnight. And later in this episode, we assembled our own American reporters in Europe to weigh in on this election's impact from a global perspective. But first, let's hear from Ambassador Wolfgang Ischinger on the stakes for Europe and the transatlantic relationship. Let's not panic. Let's not panic. The world is not coming to an end, as some people seem to be suggesting, uh, regardless of what outcome the U.S. presidential election is going to produce. First of all, the relationship, our relationship with the United States 
has never been totally free of friction. We're talking about degrees of friction. The problem is that in most of the time for the last 70 years, if we had serious issues of friction, we were able to deal with them because there was a fundamental relationship of mutual trust. And it seems to me that that relationship of fundamental trust has tended to evaporate a bit over the last three and a half years. That makes it much harder to deal with new issues where we uh, on the German or on the European side may, may want to disagree with the uh, government of the United States. But I think we will always need to um, try to work as best we can with the US because I think the idea of European autonomy, which is uh, popular with some folks here in Europe, I think it's a stupid idea. It's not possible. We depend and we will depend whether we like it or not. We depend enormously on a functioning transatlantic relationship, hopefully one based on this trust that I, that I mentioned. I very strongly believe that it is a mistake for us on the European side, for decision makers on the European side, to focus only on whether we like or dislike what the White House is currently doing. We tend to forget that the United States is the United States, the United States. So it matters, it is important for us to deal with 50 states, especially with the ones that, that are relevant to us in terms of economic relationships, investment, etc. The same is true for the United States Congress. So the United States is more than just the White House. And even if we have a difficulty with this White House occasionally, there are other avenues that we can explore. Uh, and this is a rich uh, relationship. There is an no enormous civil society available in America. So let's engage, engage, engage. You're at the center of many, many other conversations across Europe. And you said, let's not panic. How would you characterize the range of opinions and emotions, what do you hear most? It's a good question. I think there is a concern uh, among the political elites, whether it's here in Berlin or in, in other capitals. So what I hear is that people are afraid of another possible or potential set of surprises. I think we we think of ourselves as capable of handling difficult issues, disagreements, if they are presented to us in a way that we can deal with it. I'll give you an example. The decision, all of a sudden, without much advance notice, about the withdrawal of 12,000 American troops from uh, Germany. At a Pentagon news conference, Defense Secretary Mark Esper confirmed the U.S. would withdraw nearly 12,000 troops from Germany. The current UCOM plan will reposition approximately 11,900 military personnel from Germany. From roughly 36 I think the excitement or the, or the disappointment or the frustration here in, on the German side is not that we believe or that Germans believe that these 12,000 
people are essentially necessary to protect Germany against some foreign threat. I think that's not the point. The point is that we thought, oh, we thought we were we we're partners in in the alliance, and here all of a sudden, what is the motivation? Is it do they want to save money? Obviously not, because the move is probably co going to cost more than if they leave them here. So is it to punish Angela Merkel? Is it about burden sharing, our inability to meet the 2% goal? Or what the heck is actually the, the motivation? We don't really know, or, or we're not very clear in our own minds. So we are, we're worried that if that's happening on a very important issue, what other surprises might be sprung on us? So the concern is, have we lost the ability across the Atlantic to talk to each other in a partnership kind of arrangement? Or did the president mean what he said when he thought it appropriate to speak of, of Europe as the foe? Maybe if you could take just a moment to, to go to the, the, the opposite possible outcome. I know we, we don't prejudge elections, but if Joe Biden were to come back into the White House, I think there's also some concern in Europe that things can't go back to normal so immediately or so fast. First, paradise will not be resurrected. Many of the issues that burden the transatlantic relationship currently were not invented by Donald Trump. In other words, we should not expect that the major differences that have developed in the transatlantic relationship will sort of disappear overnight. But my more important point would be, regardless of the number of difficult issues that separate us, the one thing that would I think would change is that we would be able to re-establish a basis of dignified, civilized discussion with an element of trust. And that would make it a lot easier to deal with persistent major disagreements on major issues. So I think the election of President Biden will not make the problems go away, but it would change the atmosphere. A little less tweeting, I bet. Yes. <laughs> The most important characteristic of that atmosphere that Ischinger mentions is trust. It's something that our next guest believes won't be salvageable should Donald Trump win re-election. So we're quite honored and pleased to have Radek Sikorski, former Minister of Defense of Poland, a foreign minister, and last year he won a seat in the European Parliament uh, for Civic Platform, that's a center-right party now in opposition to the governing uh, Law and Justice Party. And in the European Parliament, uh, he is the chair of the delegation for relations with the U.S., but also married to the American historian and journalist Anne Applebaum. So who better to talk to us about what's at stake for transatlantic relations and the stakes in the U.S. presidential election? So uh, maybe we can start by winding back the clock to four years ago. So much has happened, but can you recall for us what you yourself were thinking around that time? I don't think I was as surprised as others because we'd seen here in Central Europe the kinds of manipulation and polarization that brought populists uh, to power earlier. And I wasn't surprised that he would strike a different chord in US foreign policy because he'd been an isolationist for 30 years. And he was actually quite consistent on that. 
And I also think it would be a mistake to think that everything will go back to businesses before. So maybe if we can fast forward now to the present day, keeping a focus on Europe and on transatlantic uh, relations, what's at stake for Europe? And, and especially, what would it mean for the EU and for Europe if Donald Trump wins a second term? Well, there are short-term things and long-term things. Short-term, a victory by Donald Trump would probably mean the reduction of troop levels in Germany. And um, I just don't know that under a second-term Trump administration, we can recover the trust that uh, the President of the United States can go on an escalation ladder, if need be, with Vladimir Putin in the nuclear sphere. You obviously, as a, as a former defense minister, you know, and foreign minister, you know NATO quite well. Are you in the camp of folks who worry that Donald Trump in a second term would quit NATO? Or is there a, a different danger, which is that he's actually enjoying very much this talking point he has, that he pressured allies to spend more money. And in fact, he would most assuredly stay within NATO and potentially disrupt and, and almost torment it uh, from within. Of course, on the money, he's right. NATO allies have been free riding and previous Americans presidents said the same thing politely, but it didn't work. So on this one, I even uh, agree with uh, his style. And it seems to be starting to work, but very slowly. The trouble with NATO is that he doesn't need formally to leave it, which Congress wouldn't let him anyway. For NATO to work, we as allies need to have confidence that he would stand up to a potential enemy in an emergency. And in that sense, he can destroy NATO with one tweet. Right. Well, he's already suggested, right, asking aloud, why should the U.S. protect Montenegro, for instance, one of the newest uh, NATO allies? Is there any silver lining? I mean, there, there are some folks certainly here in Brussels who I speak to who would say that you know, one benefit of these past turbulent four years, if you can call it that, has been a greater realization that Europe needs to be more of its own protector to, to sort of get off the addiction to American power. Is there a benefit, potentially a silver lining there, in that Europe would clearly need to step up and take responsibility? I mean, sure, the, the argument would be reinforced, but the question is, would uh, Europe do anything about it? You know, the rise of China, the um, Russian aggression and American isolationism are already with us. And yet Europe is not getting serious about its own security. And let's turn now for a moment to the, the other scenario, which is that uh, Joe Biden wins this election. And for sure, the tone would change. But would transatlantic relations necessarily improve so fast? I'm of the school that when politicians don't do active harm, then, hallelujah, we should already be grateful. And President Biden is a known quantity. He would stabilize the relationship. He would stop calling us foes. He would stop imposing counterproductive and silly sanctions. He would stop the chaos. And what do you say to the thought that, in fact, Trump is the symptom of something, but he isn't the cause. 
that in fact there's something about American society and it will not go away even if Trump loses this election? Uh, certainly. I mean, someone like Trump, I think 30 or 40 years ago, would not have uh, been in a position to run. Uh, let's also remember that he only became president because of failures of American democracy. You know, in Europe, we think that if you have, you know, we, we have popularly elected presidents in Poland, but in Poland, in the last election, the person who became president, you know, got 500,000 votes more than his opponent. A situation in which you need to get 4 million votes more than your opponent and not be guaranteed uh, the presidency is not how we understand democracy. And as you know, this business of needing tens of millions of dollars to become a senator or millions of dollars to become a congressman every two years uh, means that the U.S. is no longer an example to follow. And the polarization of politics, which was strengthened by the shape of algorithms invented by American tech companies, is also part of the reason why, why Donald Trump won. So to put it maybe very succinctly, can the relationship between Europe, the EU, and the U.S. survive four more years of Donald Trump? I hope it can. I'll do my best to secure it, whatever happens. Trump's presidency has been a seemingly relentless assault on multilateralism and international agreements, from pulling out of the Paris Climate Accords and the Iran nuclear deal to quitting the World Health Organization over its handling of the coronavirus pandemic. To ponder the stakes of the election for global cooperation, I turned to two of my fellow Americans covering the good, bad, and awful of Trump and his relationship with Europe. Sarah Wheaton, Politico Europe's senior health reporter, is also a former White House correspondent and longtime political reporter in Washington, and Matt Karnichnik, our chief Europe correspondent who's based in Berlin. So in many ways, we knew by mid-spring that this election was going to be very much about coronavirus and the handling, mishandling, or non-handling of this pandemic. Sarah, want to take it from there? In American elections, we love to talk about an October surprise, and this was really the ultimate one, President Trump being diagnosed with the coronavirus. And Trump's diagnosis is like the ultimate American diagnosis, because in the U.S., we have kind of a very strong libertarian conception of freedom. And so we don't have this nanny state that tells you what to do. And so people have the freedom to make their own choices and they have the freedom to make their own bad choices. And the attitude is supposed to be that you are supposed to suffer the consequences of the bad choices that you make. On the other hand, if you're the president of the United States, are you really the only one suffering if you get sick when you need to have people around you protecting you and working with you all the time when the security of the country depends on your health? So that is kind of the twist there. But it's definitely shaking up the race and is very arguably pretty good for the Biden campaign. But Sarah, it's also a larger morality tale, no, not just about how Trump has handled this in the United States, but also how he's dealt with this globally, spewing a lot of venom at China, but also at the World Health Organization. Right. And with the WHO, we really see a collision of Trump's sort of hostility to science and expertise and the elite and his hostility to kind of anything multilateral. 
and then also conveniently his hostility to China. And many people actually around Europe don't really fully disagree with his critiques of the WHO, but they definitely disagree with his decision to leave the WHO, which will be formal next year if it happens. And it is a pretty big deal for the WHO because the U.S. up to this point has been the biggest single donor to the World Health Organization. And we also provide a huge amount of just the actual human beings, the scientists working there. And Trump also has kind of systematically undermined the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which are sort of the gem of the world as far as monitoring for diseases and doing research and how to control them. And so all of this ties together to really undermine U.S. engagement with the world. And some people that I was talking to are actually saying, look, this isn't just going to affect the World Health Organization. Trump's withdrawal from multilateral organizations is going to affect U.S. engagement and the world's trust in the U.S. to fulfill its leadership role in many other areas. And this really gets at the question of the stakes for the rest of the world in this U.S. election, something that folks are are fretting about quite a bit uh, here in Europe, not just on, on the issue of health, but also especially on security, the future of NATO. And I think, Matt, you had some thoughts about whether, in fact, they're overly worried uh, sort of getting uh, this all wrong when it comes to uh, what America will or won't do for them, even in a second Trump term. It is, of course, hard to imagine the Europeans overreacting about uh, anything, especially concerning the United States. But, you know, there's all of this woe is me also about what Sarah was just saying, you know, that, oh, you know, he's not engaged in these multilateral uh, organizations anymore. But if you look at it closely and you ask yourself, well, how effective have these organizations really been anyway? How effective is the U.N., even when the United States was engaged. And I would argue, well, not particularly effective. And so I think what you could see end up happening is, you know, should Trump win re-election, which seems unlikely at this point, if you look at the polls, I do think that you would see a more bilateral approach by the U.S. Uh, I think there are a lot of people who think that NATO will not survive in the shape it's in now and the shape it's in now might not be that great, but it still exists in the second Trump presidency. You might see the complete collapse or it would, as some people say, exist uh, only in name. And then you would have bilateral deals between Washington and, say, countries like Poland and, and, and Hungary and so forth. But so let me ask you the sort of classic campaign election question that we hear in the United States, but about the U.S. reputation and role in the world. Is U.S. leadership in the world better off than it was four years ago? Is the U.S. standing, does this matter? Does the substance or the style make such a difference that the U.S. is in fact diminished? Or do you think that that is just a myth that in fact, you know, U.S. power and wealth in the end are what matters? And uh, this sort of sense that uh, U.S. leadership has waned during the first Trump term is more of a mirage. I don't think it's a mirage, but I think what you're talking about is soft power versus hard power. And Trump doesn't seem to care much uh, about soft power. And people will debate how important that really is. If you believe in soft power, then it could be a real problem. But, you know, it might also be a more honest way of doing business. And, you know, Trump isn't pretending to be something uh, that he's not for the most part. He's very uh, transactional. And some people might prefer that, actually. I don't know if it's as sustainable in the long term, but 
you know, in the short to medium term, it's an easier way maybe to get results, and especially if you look at what has happened in the Middle East recently with Israel and, and some of its neighbors and the deals that uh, he's succeeded in getting there. It doesn't solve the problem in the long term, but it is, you know, certainly, you know, I would argue better than, you know, where we were before he came into office. So I, I would wonder when he attacks something like uh, the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline, is he attacking that because he doesn't think the pipeline is a good idea or is he really trying to stick it to Angela Merkel or Sarah to throw it back to you when he goes after the WHO and after China on coronavirus? Is that really about the failings of the WHO or is that about saying, look, it's not me. Don't blame me. It's not that I did a bad job. It's their fault. I think – it's mostly that he's trying to duck blame. And then also it's totally on brand, as we've been saying, for Trump to be like, screw this big organization. America's paying tons of money into it. They're not giving back what we want. And so I'm going to leave. Trump's presidency has forced Europe to take a hard look in the mirror and consider what it is willing and capable to do on its own. Some argue that this is actually a healthy, long overdue exercise for Europe. Others worry that the deficit of trust between the United States and its European partners will become an irreconcilable breach during four more years of Donald Trump. A Biden presidency, however, may change the tone and atmosphere of transatlantic relations, certainly with less presidential tweeting, but it's unclear how much, if anything, will change in terms of substance. That's all for this week. Ryan will be back next Tuesday with another episode of Campaign Confidential, and the regular EU Confidential crew will be back in your feed on Thursday. I'm David Herzenhorn in Brussels. Thanks to our producer, Christina Gonzalez, and thanks to you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.